Have you been outbirding? Outbirding with Field Guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure, conversations with fascinating bird people, and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go outbirding with Field Guides. Join the fun at outbirding.com ABA. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. Happy Halloween to all who celebrate. It is the last Thursday of the month. That means this month in birding, so I don't want to spend too much time up top yammering on my own when you can hear me yammering with the October panel coming up. But I do want to point to the ABA website for our new field ornithology column before I throw to the rest of the show. If you're a longtime ABA member, you might be familiar with the magazine North American Birds. It has been four decades, the ornithological journal of record for North America, basically where all the interesting records of birds on the continent get published. In the past, we have kind of offered it as a separate subscription in addition to the ABA membership, but much of what was in NAB, as we called it, is available to regular members and increasingly to the general public for free online. And that includes all of those data-rich regional reports that made up the majority of the North American Birds quarterly journal. But we're also doing a column called Field Ornithology that is essentially cool bird phenomena that are happening right now. And the latest from Alex Hopping accounts a current eruption of mountain birds in the western Great Plains. Mountain chickadee and woodhouse's scrub jay have been the most prominent species, but things like Stellar's jay, black-capped chickadee, red nape, sapsucker have all been seen downslope as well, and potentially that Huge influx of Western migrating birds like black-throated gray warbler, towns, and solitaire brewery sparrow might be part of this as well. It's been some fall for Western birds in the eastern part of the continent. At this point, it's hard to point to any explanation for this. Uh, could be the fires, could be drought, could be you know conventional drivers like populations overflowing because of a successful breeding season or substandard food in the core range. But it's happening in addition to the big finch movement we're seeing. So birders, especially those sort of in the middle of the continent, keep your eyes open for all that. On the show this week, it is This Month in Birding, as I said earlier, with a panel that consists of Danielle Bellany, Ryan Mendelbaum, Prabita Saha. We talk duck stamps, we talk finches, and as befitting the day, we talk spooky cemetery birding. Actually, it's not all that spooky. It's, it's really more fun. All that after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of October 2020. I don't want to overstate things, but this week is one of the most exciting weeks for rarities that I can remember since I started keeping track of ABA area rarities for the organization way back in February of 2011, though admittedly I can't really remember those early days very well. But that's not meant to undermine what was a truly extraordinary week with a lot of incredible rarities. I will focus on a few of them here. First up, an apparent white-crested Elania was seen in Grand Forks, North Dakota, potentially the second record of this South American flycatcher. That's right, South American flycatcher in the ABA area. White-crested Elania is a long-distance austral migrant, meaning a bird that breeds in southern South America and migrates north towards the equator in the southern hemisphere winter. And it is spring in the southern hemisphere now, so this is exactly when they'd be moving and exactly when you'd expect a bird if that bird went essentially 180 degrees 
in the wrong direction. It is as if a Blackpool warbler wintering in Columbia went south instead of north, which is the thing they've probably done as 180 degree reverse migration is a known phenomenon. In this case, this incredible record is currently being reported as Elenia spa, Elenia species, as that genus is as notorious as Impidinax when it comes to identification quandaries. But white-crested seems to be the growing consensus, so I feel pretty confident saying that here. I've even heard that it looks like the Chilean subspecies, which some authorities believe should be its own species, Chilean Elenia. Both eBird and AOS South American Checklist have it as subspecies of white-crested now, so we'll call it white-crested. That doesn't take away anything. It's still unbelievable. But that was not all. We turn now to British Columbia, where an apparent red-backed shrike, also an ABA second and a provincial first, was discovered at Powell River that is on the BC mainland north of the city of Vancouver. It was originally reported as a brown shrike, as was the ABA's first redback shrike, which itself would have been a great bird. So old world shrikes are also, just like Elania's, notoriously difficult IDs, but subsequent photos have confirmed it as redback shrike. Phenomenal find. You know, we talked last week about something interesting happening up in that Oregon, Washington, British Columbia area. It is still happening. Fall is such a wonderful time to be birding on the West Coast. So the Elania and the Shrike are a heck of a one-two punch, but I do want to shine a spotlight on a third bird that might go under the radar. Fall pelagics in California typically turn up some exciting birds, and this week a streaked shearwater was seen on a trip out of Half Moon Bay, San Mateo County, California. This is the first in the ABA area for more than 10 years. And for those of us who look at the pelagic plates in the field guide with wonder, this has always been an exciting bird. If for no other reason that it defies the sort of classic tube nose, dark on top, light on the bottom pattern, and that it is sort of light in the front instead. Anyway, it's cool looking and a notable bird for sure. And last but not least, a couple of firsts, both Pacific wrens, funnily enough, one from Kawina County, Michigan, and another from New Orleans Parish, Louisiana. I don't want to say that that's completely related to the movement of Western birds that I mentioned in the intro, but it's definitely part of a pattern. Both birds were recorded, by the way, which remains the best way to differentiate Pacific from the expected in the East winter wren. Those are the highlights for the week. A lot of good birds. For a more complete look at all the rare birds seen across the US and Canada, and there were a lot of them, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org slash RBA. You can also go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. It's the last Thursday in October, and that means this month in birding, wherein I convene an August panel of birders to discuss the news that I missed this month, or more likely saves till the end of the month because uh, this stuff is more fun to talk about with other people. The panel this week is, for the first time, all returnees, all of whom I am pleased to welcome back. First up, she's a wildlife biologist. She is the cemetery birder. She is part of the Black AF in STEM collective. She is, of course, Danielle Bellany. Welcome, Danielle. Hi. It's so nice to be back. And uh, next, a physics and quantum computing writer in their day job, but a birder in their heart. Welcome back, Ryan Mendelbaum. Hello, Ryan. Hey, Nate. What's going on? Great to have you. And third, a writer for Popular Science and a new dog parent. Congratulations, by the way. She's beautiful. It is our friend, Prabita Saha. Hi, Prabita. Hi. Excited for the spooky podcast. Spooky. Yeah, very spooky. <laughs> So let's start off with a topic that came across my radar and probably yours earlier in the month. 
Uh, the judging for the federal duck stamp competition was this month. This is the first batch of submissions to the contest that had to abide by the new rule that says that hunting elements, paraphernalia needs to be included in the artwork. So submissions included all these sort of classic images of waterfowl and also kind of shoehorned in there were hunters and duck calls and dogs and decoys and even a peregrine falcon that was, you know, at least something different. Uh, the winning art painting of a lesser scop, if you like that sort of hyper-realistic style of duck stamps, was a nice one. Uh, but there was a weird duck call floating in the water next to it. Not as obvious as some of the other elements, but still kind of weird. Uh, it's not clear who wanted any of this. The artists don't really like it. Hunters don't care. Birders definitely don't like it. It's something, I guess. What do you, what do you all think of this? I know that you guys have commented on this and uh, on uh, on social media. Um, so I have a f- couple of friends who are duck hunters. I know that you know birders don't like killing birds, but I don't. They don't like it. They don't. It's like they're like, what? What's the point? You know, we all want. We all know that duck stamps are so important for wildlife conservation, right? So much of that money goes directly to buying land. And I just don't understand why you would want to do something divisive to that 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 program. Yeah, I agree. It's more the feedback from the actual hunting community that's like empowered me to criticize this decision as well. Um, and I think like uh, Audubon Magazine has been reporting on this change since last year. And of course, there's you know a lot of political motivation behind it. So it's hard to separate that from you know the final conservation outcome here it's it's trash (laughs) (laughs) i mean like literally like the decision was trash and like the slang sense but like there's literal trash in the paintings there's like Hmm. duck calls and spent shotgun shells and decoys that are just floating alongside that feel like they're just like stuck in there haphazardly like the artists had their plan and then they thought oh all right i guess i gotta I got to stick this thing in there and it looks like litter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, these artists spend so much time on this, on their contest entries, like out in the field, taking in the natural elements. It's just, yeah, it's such, like you said, Nate, it's such an odd accessory or feature to add in there, given all the work that they put into it. Yeah. I mean, and it's really the artists that I feel bad for because, you know, they have these visions, they go out and they see these beautiful scenes with this beautiful wildlife. And then they have to, in many cases, spoil these paintings with actual garbage. (laughs) Yeah. And I remember when they were, you know, because this was a executive whatever decision. So they changed the rule. They had to open it to public comments. And I remember when they were doing that mm-hmm. and you'd look at the public comments and, and it's, it was like 80, 90% of the comments were like, why are you doing this? What is the point of this? This will <laughs> ruin this duck stamp that has been obviously this great conservation tool. And then they went ahead and did it anyway. I, I don't know why. I guess there's political reasons for for it. It seems like the only people who are really pushing it are the people who are politically appointed to the Fish and Wildlife Service. Everyone else, I imagine, you know, rank and file Fish and Wildlife Service folks are out there wondering why they have to defend this as well now, too. And another point that that strikes me is that, you know, the actual duck stamp, the actual canvas that these people are going to end up displaying their work on is this little tiny stamp that's like maybe three inches by two inches. You're not even going to be able to see this stuff. Mm-hmm. Why? Again, why? It's just interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is that. 
Yeah. I mean, they they could have just picked ones with hunting stuff in them, right? Like they yeah. they didn't have like why limit yourself? Why limit the artists? Why why <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 not even against my it's like sort of against my politics. It was just so baffling to me that I'm just like, "Come on, guys, like you could just do go be evil elsewhere. Like you don't just <laughs> don't don't ruin ducks for everybody." I was I guess we're just still waiting for the uh for the inevitable, you know, duck getting actually in the process of getting blown out of the sky on the stamp <laughs> or the duck with the with the mm. firearm. We can go we can go all sorts of directions with this now. Ducks hunting ducks. Ducks hunting ducks. <laughs> <laughs> I think that folks who know me know that I am a crossbill fanatic. I have my brand new crossbill mouse pad sitting next to me right now. Um, <laughs> but this past summer, uh, wildfires blazed through southern Idaho um, and really across the entire American West, uh, causing you know mayhem, death, destruction. It was really horrible. But in the bird world, uh, a especially intense fire actually ripped through the heart of the newest crossbill species, the Cache crossbill. So for those of you who don't know, the Cache crossbill is one of the many crossbill types, but unlike most of the crossbill types that move around the country in search of conifer seeds, uh, the caches stay put in this tiny section of lodgepole pine forest in the South Hills and Albion Forest in, in, in Idaho. Um, and so because these are sedentary birds, scientists are really worried that these fires, I mean, in the short term, they probably caused some real damage to the population of these crossbills. Uh, but in the long term, there's going to be more fires as climate change, you know, exacerbates drought and other extreme weather events. And it could be that fires are going to be the death sentence for this already endangered species of bird. Yeah, it's a sad story. I kind of heard some secondhand and thirdhand stuff about uh, people being concerned about some of those fires in Idaho. So I was really glad that you wrote this article on the Finch. What, what, where did this article turn up, Ryan? It was in the Finch, <laughs> the Finch Network. Research Network. Yeah. So yeah. Um, a couple of the the Finch researchers in uh, in the U.S. are starting this nonprofit endeavor to both popularize finches as well as to kind of get more people involved in in Finch research. And you know, the crossbill is a favorite finch species of a lot of people. They're just really interesting little birds you know they they have all of these different potential subspecies that might be real species and you can only tell the mm -hmm. difference if you record them but yeah that's kind of the, the the drive of this finch research network is we've been really studying these eruptive finch species that move in response to food sources as well as the uh poor sedentary cash across bill yeah i was i was glad that um that you you know dug into that and actually talked to the people who are who knew about the cash across bill not you know happy that the but the result of the story it does kind of sound sort of sad and depressing and and uh i you know know that the fires have these sort of real impacts on what's going on in the west and species like kesha crossbow who's not even who can't even move or doesn't even move uh it seems especially susceptible to it in a way that uh the more nomadic birds are but on the positive side it's a great time of year to talk about finches there's so many of them right now <laughs> That's right. In fact, so you probably everybody has probably seen by now the uh, annual Finch uh, forecast. Tyler Hoare is the new hey, Finch forecaster. He's uh, replacing Ron Pitaway. And it's uh, he predicted that it would be a flight year. So the finches are erupting out of their usual habitats in search of food. And it's already this phenomenal year for finches. I mean, if pine siskins are 
everywhere. <laughs> Evening Gross Beaks have started to erupt. We've got Evening Gross Beaks in Florida. We had a common red pole in, Me- in, uh, in New Mexico. I mean, it's already, I'm hope. Uh, now we just need Evening Gross Beaks in Brooklyn so I could see one already. <laughs> I'd be very jealous. Uh, I've seen a lot of, I've seen a bunch of siskins. Have y'all seen siskins wherever you are? I have not yet. Yeah. Whoa, no. I need to set up some feeders. Um, yeah. Do they do they only come? What what kind of do they come to suet as well or no? I mean, I I don't think they wouldn't. Okay. But they really like the. I think from what I'm hearing, they're really going for like shellless sunflower seeds. Got it. Um, I don't know. My I saw them at my mother in law's feeder, and uh, I don't think that she spends a ton of money on <laughs> on bird food, so I don't think they're super picky. <laughs> I think they'll eat anything, um, but yeah. because they have those tiny little beaks, they're really uh, into thistle seed. And uh, another really good place to see them is if you have a local stand of sweet gum trees or mm, um, mm-hmm. even like those beggar tick weeds, any of those could be a really good spot to uh, sort of sit and look for siskins or just find a good morning flight spot. And, you know, if you're in the right place, at the right time, hopefully you'll get a flock flying over. Very cool. Great tips. Yeah, it's been a it's been a good year for red breasted nuthatches as well. I've yet to see one in my um in my county, and so I'm getting a ton of eBird alerts for that. Have you have any of you seen the red breasted nuthatch movement yet this year? They had like a crazy number of them coming down the eastern shore of Virginia a couple weeks ago. I hear them laughing yeah. at me. Yank yank yank. <laughs> yeah, I finally got some on my Brooklyn apartment list. There, the honorary the honorary eruptive finch red breasted nuthatch. That's right. Yeah, a bunch of people in my group chat have been seeing them, especially uh, in the local areas and and uh, one of the cemeteries that are pretty popular to go birding here. Um, but I've yet to find one, and I feel I feel insulted. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in Southwest Missouri now, right? I am, and there's so many good birds out here. Well, it's so funny because um, I, like that's where I grew up. And I usually think of it as a place that people go away from and not a place that people go to. <laughs> so it's very strange. You're like the first person I've ever met that's actually moved to Springfield, which is pretty strange. I, I'm also the first person I've met who has moved to Springfield. <laughs> Everyone is from there. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Have you found a birding pocket there or a pocket of birders? Yes, I definitely have. Um, I am actually in my first official hardcore birders group chat, and that's exactly what it's called, um, featuring Greg Swick, who is uh, yeah, my Nate, dad. Nate's dad. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yep. Yeah, he's a president of the Audubon chapter here, and he's almost certainly listening to this podcast. So, uh, hello, hello, dad. <laughs> Danielle, what are some of the like winter birds that you look forward to out there? I mean, I'm I'm only aware of like my local Brooklyn patch. Oh man, so. I've heard of, so wintertime is probably the only time I'll actually exert energy to find and ID goals. So there have been some <laughs> cool goals seen around in this area. I think we have some Bonapartes lately. And then also, I guess winter ducks, I mean, they're still coming around here. Um, like the long-tailed duck, that's been my nemesis for the last year. And it's, oh. I've been told that they come around here. So I will be camping out by all bodies of water to see <laughs> that very duck. Um, and I guess red-breasted nuthatches too. Um, they've they've been evading me. Yeah, if you get a chance to uh, go with the Audubon group out to um, 
See, this is this is like the extremely local birding content that people come to this podcast for. We should we should put in another episode that's like Southwest Missouri birding. But um, there's some spots west of Springfield where you can get uh, Smith's Longspur and some oh, other nice. kind of cool birds uh, in the winter. Uh, that's that's really worth checking out if you get a chance. I'm sure that they'll take you out. Yeah, I need to reconnect. Can yep. you get painted bunting there too? In the summer, not in the winter. Uh, yeah. yeah. Painted bunting is like a winter bird here. Like every winter, (laughs) one painted bunting shows up in Brooklyn and everybody goes gaga over it. They're super weird. You know, their migration, especially the ones on the East Coast, they actually go north in the winter. So uh, we have the southeastern subspecies of painted bunting breeds up into southern North Carolina, like along the South Carolina, Georgia coast. And then they actually go north in the winter. And so you'll end up seeing them like up in the outer banks and further north. It's a really odd bird. I don't know why they do that. but That's so wild. I had no clue they did that. I thought they were all yeah. going to more tropical places. The, the ones in the middle of the country do, but the ones on the East coast are, are different. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, Danielle, we'll get you your finches. Just uh, yeah. you'll get them. You yeah. say that, but I feel like they're going to be, you know, <laughs> bopping around, tinny yank yanking where I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is a birding podcast. Birders know about cemeteries. Yes. <laughs> um, and if you haven't really gotten into your cemetery, I mean, it's a really great place to go. It's a really awesome place to, um, I mean, be, be at peace. You're, you're birding in peace is what I like to think of cemetery birding as. And yeah, lately, this has been one of my pushes to get, you know, like non-birders or, you know, beginner nature enthusiasts who maybe haven't thought about these really cool green spaces that are pretty mm-hmm. much everywhere. Like country places have cemeteries, city places have cemeteries. Yeah, go out and explore your local cemetery because it's it's a nice little patch. They have a lot of benches. I, I really appreciate <laughs> a good bench. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing to me, you know, along with sewage treatment plants and landfills, like cemeteries are some of the more popular birding locations in a lot of places. There's a lot of famous cemeteries for people that have been, you know, historically great birding sites, uh, you know, Mount Auburn and Boston. And um, there's one in San Diego whose name escapes me uh, right now. There's a military cemetery that's like one of the best places to bird there. And and as you say, like for a lot of people, it's like an easily accessible green space with a lot of really great big trees. I mean, I think I've got like 10 lifers. I can name off the top of my head. I mean, birds are, I, birds are everywhere. I moved to a new town in New Jersey and um, this spring, because I couldn't get out to Central Park because of the pandemic, I had a really tough time finding warblers around here. Um, and then I just hit up one of the small cemeteries in town, which they say it has existed since the Civil War. I call BS on that. Um, but yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, I can't, I didn't log Central Park numbers of warblers, but just it was more passerine migrants than I could find anywhere else um, in this little suburb. So yeah, highly recommend. I still need to find a clay-colored sparrow, and I know cemeteries are often good for them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Brooklyn, because it's such a dense urban cityscape that, you know, we have Prospect Park, which is good for all the warblers, but Greenwood Cemetery is such an interesting spot because it has tons of native plantings and grasslands. So it's the be- one of the best spots in the whole borough for birds like clay-colored sparrow or blue grosbeak is, you know, almost, hmm. almost definite bird to see during the right time of year. And a lot of those, uh, we even will sometimes get, I haven't seen them, but dick sissels and the occasional meadowlark. And it's definitely the best spot perhaps in the city to see uh, woodcocks. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Yeah. And Perbita, you brought up a good point that like in this pandemic season, uh, I feel like it's more than a season, but um, in this <laughs> pandemic era. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel uncomfortable going to the parks that I used to go to because there's literally no one wearing a mask. I, I know I get it. We're outside, but sure, you're still walking by people. You should be covering your mouth. And I don't feel comfortable using the same trails or like the same park areas that I used to. There's just way too many people. So cemeteries mm-hmm. are definitely that, you know, that open space. I'm usually like the only person <laughs> in the whole cemetery. <laughs> so it's like, oh, sweet. I have this whole green space to myself. And I, I consider myself a very like low energy casual birder. I don't want to work <laughs> super hard to see all the birds that I'm trying to see. Like, and cemeteries are super paved, usually re- relatively like flat and smooth. And they have a lot of benches. Again, I get tired. So <laughs> being able to like rack up a good amount of species while not having to exert too much energy is, you know, wi- right up my alley. Do you find that cemeteries are like important for the birds of the area too? Because it strikes me, you know, the sort of habitat that you see at cemeteries are pretty, you know, it's lawns, it's pretty well manicured, but the trees are usually left to do their thing. So I immediately think of like a bird like Baltimore Oriole or something like that, that likes those big mature trees that's kind of open underneath it. I would think that cemeteries would be super important for birds like that as like just kind of incubators for local populations. Yeah, definitely. And I see a lot of like, you know, the well-manicured lawns, a lot of like grassland birds using those areas, especially when I was in San Antonio, I would see a bunch of lark sparrows all over the cemeteries, Hmm. just, you know, pecking away at the grass and vermilion flycatchers would also be hanging out in that area too. Um, Also the water features at cemeteries, like little faucets that are sometimes on, sometimes off. Birds are paying attention to that and using that water resource um, to take a bath or take a sip. So it's it's all kinds of stuff wrapped up inside of a cemetery. What are some of your favorite cemetery sightings? I would love to hear. I just want to, I'm, I'm more interested in Missouri birding these days than I am in Brooklyn birding. I just want to hear <laughs> what, what you're seeing. I've honestly haven't had a chance to do very much, like I would say quality cemetery burning in Missouri. Um, but in Texas, I would definitely see, I mean, the, the Vermilions, I would see at least three mating pairs in this tiny little cemetery that I would frequent, like down the street from my parents' place. And I would just watch them for, for hours. A lot of loggerhead strikes also like to hang out in that hmm. cemetery. It was great to watch both pairs. Like one pair had one half of the cemetery, the other pair had the other half of the cemetery. It was also on the back of a, an exotic game ranch, which that's kind of Texas specific. I don't think Missouri has <laughs> exotic game ranches the way Texas does. No, so it would be pretty cool to see like African animals <laughs> literally just hanging out. Mm. Just, hey, what's up? Here's a cool bird and here's a <laughs> animal I'll probably never see again. So, <laughs> Yeah, that is very Texas. <laughs> and Danielle, I wanted to circle back real quick to when you were talking about using the paved pathways and the benches. Last night, I was watching this birdability webinar that the National Audubon Society put on, and there was a lot of talk about there just aren't enough uh, accessible spaces for people who are in wheelchairs or who are using canes uh, because of visual impairment. Uh, So I can see cemeteries being a great opportunity and option for them. Absolutely. It's just really cool (laughs) that cemeteries can somehow combine like accessibility and quality and Mm -hmm. like all of that into one amazing birding spot. So everybody go take care of your local cemetery. Danielle, do you read the headstones when you visit these cemeteries or do you apologize to the corpses when you step (laughs) over them? 
Oh my gosh, I have a whole routine. <laughs> um, I absolutely do. Well, I, I avoid stepping on headstones as much as possible. And I'll be like, excuse me. Like, I'll greet them when I when I show up. I'll apologize if I step on a headstone because that's really rude. That, this is their spot. Like, approach this area with some respect, okay? And then I also, like, tell everybody goodbye. And I thank them for um, <laughs> letting me enjoy birds in this area. And I just, I just feel like they appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's a huge opportunity for cemeteries also. I mean, I feel like, I I don't know if this is because of all the birders, but in Brooklyn, Greenwood is so accommodating. It really wants to build itself as a place with native wildlife and native plantings and is such a beautiful spot now. And I feel like almost a connection to some of the mourners who I see. I mean, I'm not like they're stomping on graves. I'm usually just walking the paths and looking around. And, you know, I, I obviously everybody has to be respectful, but it just feels like a, you know, people want people in cemeteries. That's the point. That's why that's why we have them is that people kind of acknowledge the the past people, right? Yeah, exactly yeah, that. Definitely. And our our cemeteries were like the first like parks and they, they were centered around that idea of this mm-hmm. is a good area for you to visit people and also recreate yourself. And um Greenwood Cemetery was the inspiration for Central Park. Um so that's just a really cool piece of history. So um, going back to cemeteries, you're you're really participating in a centuries-long tradition, and not just of birders, but just of America in general. Yeah, I love that. I got the chills. I was like, "Damn, that's so cool!" <laughs> I, I actually just wrote an article, and it's out like as of today. So uh, check my Twitter for the link of that. It's my yeah, first right official on. cemetery uh, birding <laughs> piece. It was real short, real quick, but more things, more big things are actually to come around cemetery birding. So yeah, be on be on the lookout for that. Yeah, we'll put the link in the in the show notes. I'm Orieta Estrada. And I'm Tykee James. We love birds, and together we lead the Black and Latinx Birders Scholarship Fund. I need the attention of all Black and Latinx folks with the love of birds. If you're currently a full-time undergraduate student, and if you live in or attend a college or university in the District of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia, or Delaware, you should apply today. November 1st is the deadline. Yes, it's right around the corner but we're only asking for a two-page essay, two-minute video, or even a really good Twitter thread. You can have $5,000 from the birding community to support your studies. Just let us get to know you and how you plan to contribute to your birding community. See specific rules and apply at marylandbirds.org forward slash grants before November 1st. That's marylandbirds.org forward slash grants. And if you have any questions, Email scholarship at marylandbirds.org. So this was a little uh, bird nerd story that got pretty good coverage uh, in places like Nat Geo and Smithsonian. So there's a pretty famous banding station in Pennsylvania called the Powder Mill Nature Reserve. (laughs) And they found a pretty odd looking rose-breasted grosbeak uh, while they were collecting fall migrants this year. The photos are amazing. So hopefully, Nate, uh, we can put in like a link to one of them. Um, This bird just, it it looks perfectly split between a breeding male rose-breasted grosbeak and a female. Uh, And this condition has been seen, you know, in a in a couple different birds, uh, there have been stories about northern cardinals that show up like this. 
um, where one half is bright red and one half is the more like yellowish brownish version of a female Northern Cardinal. So anyway, uh, the condition is called, uh, bilateral. Gen- <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Guy. Uh, sorry. Say it one more time, please. Uh, and I could be completely wrong. I'll put that caveat on here, but I've heard it pronounced gynandromorph. Maybe that's a Pokemon thing like Gyarados, but gynandromorph. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. I'm sure there's a Latin root to it. Uh, the scientific term for this is called bilateral gynandromorphism. So essentially birds like humans and all other animals have sex chromosomes Uh, instead of X and Y, they have Z and W. In a bird with bilateral gynandromorphism, its parent has an odd mutation where the reproductive cells have two nuclei. So in the separate nuclei, they're each fertilized and you end up with two different sets of sex chromosomes in the offspring. So that's pretty technical, but basically in the end, your bird ends up with ZW on one side and ZZ on one side. So male on one half and female on the other half. Um, It's different than hermaphroditism where an animal is born with genitals of both sexes. In this case, it's just an even split on two parts of the body. Um, so again, that's, it's very, as a birder, it's, uh, it's very eye catching and right away you should notice that you're looking at a bird that looks both female and male. So it's really weird because powder mill has caught gynandromorphic rose-breasted grosbeak in the past. So they kind of have a little history going with Hmm. um, this super rare condition for this bird. Um, And I've seen, I saw a few cases uh, of this being seen in grosbeaks in other places as well. So I don't know if it turns up more in this species than in other bird species. Uh, But either way, it's, it's fascinating to be able to see. And I, you know, I, I don't know what happens to these birds. I imagine that they can't reproduce in the same capacity as others. Um, but I would love to see one someday. The one that they caught, there's this amazing video of the banders like showing off the wings and how the underwing patches, mm-hmm. one's red and one's yellow. Right. And these gross beaks and cardinals, they're such feisty birds in the hand. And so this <laughs> bird is using its big fat beak and just like pinching the heck out of the hand of the bander and i was like that bird does not want to be held it's not want to be shown off (laughs) they showed off these details on the flight feathers and such like every every last bit of plumage almost completes this male female puzzle in the bird so it's not just you know part of the face or part of the chest or the really you know obvious features it's the sex chromosomes are coding every little detail um, and that's that just further deepens the mystery and intrigue. So fascinating. I've seen photos of these birds, of, like as cardinals that show up every once in a while. And yeah, I, I mean, grosbeaks and cardinals are closely related. So I do wonder if it's something that's more 
you know, oh. inclined to happen in those mm-hmm. yeah, in the, that family. Point. But I also saw a photo of a black throated blue warbler that was a bilateral mm-hmm. ganandromorph, and I might be able to find that somewhere and throw that in the link too. But it was really it's really cool as well for the same reasons. Like it's like right down the middle. Um, it makes you wonder if this happens in species that are not sexually dimorphic. Yeah. Like how would you even be able to tell? <laughs> Just goes yeah. to show you that sex isn't binary, folks. <laughs> yep. Yep. Even in nature, sorry, mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you for that important, important note. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's it's. I mean, it's fascinating. I would if you saw one of these birds and you saw it facing in profile one way, and then you put your binoculars down, and then it flipped around, and you put your binoculars up again. Would you think you were looking at two different birds? Would you even know? <laughs> I would absolutely lose it, regardless. <laughs> yeah, that's true. yeah that's probably true. So, if I make a field guide that has male, female, and gynandromorph of every single species, <laughs> will you all buy it, please? Yes, because absolutely. Because it would take years to make. Well, you know, you just use the same images for those species that the males and females are the same. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And I don't even have Photoshop on my computer, so I'd have to use Microsoft Paint to like splice them yeah. together. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'd buy it in a heartbeat. It's that, this is sort of right. a 21st century queer birding guide that I've been <laughs> I love the idea of being able to scratch off the male and the female on your life or list at the same time. I think more that's birds right. need to just for efficiency reasons. Oh, that's a great go, point. Go an andromorph. Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know I've seen, I know some people who do keep lists like of plumages that they've seen. Oh, so, that's cool. you know, going even farther beyond, you know, do I, have I seen the species? Have I seen the species and all of the possible plumages that are available? That goals are a nightmare. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and this would be like uh like the blocker to end all blockers. Like you like <laughs> you get one and you would have to count for all of them because they're so mm. uncommon. This is so funny because the last time you had me and Perbita on the show, Nate, we came and spoke about female bird day. So this is sort of just That's all right. tying it back in the nice circle. Yeah. Oh, You're my yeah. go-to for bird gender topics. <laughs> <laughs> so this fall, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service made a few changes and propositions for the endangered species list. One bird that's been uh, in contention for a while for the endangered species list has been the eastern black rail. So this is a subspecies of the black rail, um, but probably the most widespread and common subspecies of the species. Wow. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I have never seen a black rail. I don't know if anyone yeah, on this well. podcast has. Has anybody in the world seen a black rail? <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe it if they say they have. <laughs> so essentially, that's why it's landing uh, on on the list. Uh, it's been designated as threatened uh, as of this October. And the agency is still working on a recovery plan for the bird. One really interesting thing that I saw in their write-up is that one of the reasons they list for uh, giving it this critical designation is that the bird's habitat is completely being washed out by climate change, sea level rise. And you don't get that kind of climate change candor with these kind of federal conservation decisions, especially, you know, in, in these past four years. Uh, So I saw that as a pretty, as a pretty big positive step. So yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens with the bird. Um, Hopefully 
there are a lot of groups actively partnering and working together to conserve this bird and keep surveying for it. It's it's really covert and hard to hard to study, yeah. but this this can really help power things forward. Hopefully, yeah, I can say based on the black rails in North Carolina where I live. Um, it used to be a species that could be pretty reliably found at a couple spots on the coast. And in the last 15 years, it has like just fallen off a cliff uh, because uh, as you say, because of climate change, you know, they, they live in, they like these Spartina marshes, which is, you know, this really uh, narrow, tiny little low marsh grass. They nest on little rises in the Spartina marsh and the rise, you know, when you say a marsh rise, it's only like maybe a few centimeters and uh, it doesn't take much sea level rise to swamp them out completely. And uh, yeah, one of my, one of my good friends is doing research on black rails and other rails in these marshes. And uh, it is not, it is not a pretty picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On the flip side, some more endangered species news. Uh, The red cockaded woodpecker, a specialty in your state, Nate, uh, has been, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife is proposing to remove it from the endangered species list, which means that they think if it's recovered enough population-wise where it doesn't need those special protections anymore. Yeah. So that isn't a done deal yet. There's a 60-day comment period. Um, but I think that's been in talks for a while because people have seen a good resurgence of it on Mm -hmm. army bases and other woodlands where there's been a lot of active recovery work. They are doing really well. That is accurate. Um, (laughs) They are one of those species that in places where if the habitat is right, there's going to be red cockaded woodpeckers there. The problem with them is that they can't disperse because the patches of habitat that's really good for them are kind of widely scattered. And so the, Fish and wildlife people have to like trap them and then take them to these other patches and seed the new colonies. And they do really well when they do that, but it's hard for them to get to those places. But mm. um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I've a mixed mind, I've mixed feelings about it, but I can definitely see that they've been doing well and it's, it's good for the species. Yeah. I mean, ultimately putting a species on the endangered species list itself is a good thing because it means that now there's going to be some real effort we hope to conserve it. I mean, especially mm. with black rail, that's a good one because you know, salt marsh habitat is so important and also so imperiled, right? I mean, yeah. it affects have, a lot of species. The listing sure. of black rail would affect a lot of species. Yeah, salt marsh Good sparrow. Point. I mean, I mean, I, mean, I only that know that one birds, in particular. But... Yeah, diamondback terrapin. If we're going to do herps, I mean, I think those are both kind of good moves. I would like to see black rail. I think it definitely needs it, especially the eastern ones. They're still somewhat reliable in the western part of the continent. Uh, I guess around the San Francisco Bay area, they're actually doing okay as that bay kind of comes back they do a lot of uh, revitalization efforts there uh, but the eastern ones not so great and red cockaded woodpecker I, I enjoy seeing more of them so <laughs> lucky you yeah yeah i've seen many red cockaded woodpeckers and still no black rails <laughs> so <laughs> it's tracks these decisions track for my personal journey <laughs> it is october it is halloween season uh, I don't know that this show has been especially spooky, though we did talk about cemeteries a bit. But birders have bird-related costumes. I don't know if you know people can go out to parties or trick-or-treating this year. But uh, have you ever seen a bird-related costume or have you done a bird-related costume that was particularly good? Do you guys have any, any that you want to <laughs> shout out? Shout out to our friend Gina, who is another 
New York birder who every year she's had a birthday party where the best bird costume gets a prize. I don't think I've won yet, but every year there are some really awesome prizes. I usually try and make it a fashion statement. So I did bearded readling one year and great tit one year and tried to put together a really chic outfit. Uh, (laughs) But every year people come in in like really, really fantastic prizes. So uh, Gina, I can't wait for your next birthday because I want to dress up as a bird again. (laughs) Ryan, are these costumes realistic? Are they like a pun? Like what is is the vibe of these costumes? (laughs) Interpretation. So mine are are like, I try and find like, okay, I'm a bearded readling. I need to do my makeup uh, just like the bird. I need the brown cardigan. I need the light blue hat. I need like black stockings. Like I really got (laughs) to look like this bird. But other people will be like, there's the pun ones. And some people go all out. Some people kind of just like, I'm a, a crow. I dress in all black. <laughs> I'll find you pictures if I, if I can. Yes, please. I think I dressed up as a pileated woodpecker when I was working at Audubon one year. And it was very low key. Like I wore a beanie and striped pants <laughs> and didn't do any makeup. But my co-worker there, Elizabeth Sorrell, she dressed up as a uh, gala, I think that's how it's pronounced, oh, yeah, uh, the pink and gray cockatoo. And she went all out, like did a hair mohawk. And yeah, it was it was impressive. I, I strive for that level. Because <laughs> um, that's the kind of costume that birders would be into, but it also stop non-birders in their tracks and make them want to ask you about what you're up to. Yeah, definitely a better <laughs> costume than my Empidonax SP that I just <laughs> Oh no, but I appreciate that so much. <laughs> the thing about being an Empidonax SP is that you couldn't talk the whole night. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. You would have trouble with that, Ryan. <laughs> you're right. I'm just a very boring person when it comes around to Halloween. I have all these ambitions and I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this this year. And to this date, I think since I've been six, I have not dressed up in a Halloween costume in, (laughs) I guess that's two decades. Since you were six? Wow. I know, and I was a Dalmatian that year. I wasn't even anything good. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I need to do a bird costume one of these years, but I need to have like an accountability partner to make sure <laughs> it actually happens. So if you forget to dress as a costume this year, you could just say you're the red-breasted nuthatches you haven't seen. Oh, wow, that hurts. Ouch, yeah. <laughs> right to the heart. <laughs> if I were to dress up as a bird, I would be... Uh, it's like it's literally called the goose and sandals and if you google that you will see exactly the bird i'm talking about but it looks like like a blue morph snow goose just in sandals and oh, as right. a person who does not own closed-toed shoes i resonate with this goose <laughs> a lot um so I've, I've always wanted to be this goose and i i hope it can actually happen one year wow that's exciting we can be we can hold you accountable Oh, thank you. Next year. Yeah, this year it's not a great one. Last, I asked this question on the podcast last year, and a lot of people sent in a lot of really wonderful uh, costumes that they had done. And uh, I will link back to that because the show notes have all the different pictures and stuff. But uh, I, I, like you, I'm asking this question. I'm not really holding myself to the standard that I'm expecting from everyone else. But the closest thing I ever did was I was on the board of a local Audubon chapter, and we did had like a board retreat on Halloween one year and um I, everyone was supposed to come dressed as a bird and i came as a blue-headed vireo which involved like a blue hat 
and a gray cardigan and glasses, which was an extremely <laughs> boring costume. But one of the, my co-members, co-board members, was a roseate spoonbill in which he was wearing like all pink and taped a spoon to his nose, which was actually really cool. <laughs> That's wow. very accurate. Yeah, exactly. One year I'll dress up as my favorite birder, Ken Kaufman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like as I age, I feel like I'm already getting closer and closer to dressing like Ken Kaufman. <laughs> That's right. We're all getting there. more pockets, yeah. more vests. <laughs> I was hoping that I was hoping that birding had finally had a renaissance this year and uh, we would finally start seeing like the sexy birder costume uh, online, oh, which but uh, we'll st- we're, we're not quite there yet, I guess. Sorry, I don't Ken, know what that would be. I don't want Ken to be mad at me for making fun of his outfit. He's very stylish. <laughs> there's, there's a birder look, though, and I wouldn't want to say that it's a Halloween costume because uh a lot of us wear it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly think that the influx of young people to birding, like I just want to mm-hmm. see people getting out there and birding in, you know, looking cool. Like I want to see like denim jackets with patches and like cool leggings. And I want to see people birding, you know, it's like the birds don't care what you look like. They're going to fly away as soon as you show up, no matter what. Teenage birders already intimidate me enough. And so (laughs) slapping on coolness on top of that, I don't know what I would do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ryan Perbita and Danielle for joining me. Uh, You can find all of their stuff. I'll put links to all the things that they're doing from cemetery birding to uh, Finch articles to social media in the show notes. Uh, thank you, all three of you, for joining me. Have a great Halloween and uh, find those nut hatches. Find those nut hatches. That's right. Woo. And siskins. <laughs> and those weird ducks. Weird ducks. It's weird <laughs> duck season. <laughs> American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources the ABA provides to birders in North America and beyond, please consider joining the American Birding Association. It does really help us out. We have memberships at a number of different levels. You can probably find one that works for you. For more information, go to aba.org join. I want to make a special shout out to Sam Conan of Bozeman, Montana, Stuart Oxenhorn of Flemington, New Jersey, Donna Cooper of Andover, Massachusetts, Ruben Ayala of San Antonio, Texas, Ganesh Karunakaran and family of New York, New York, and Jason Irla of all of whom recently joined the American Birding Association and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much for that. Welcome and welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, whose favorite spooky bird story involves the reported first state record Sprague's pivot that wasn't properly identified as a young horned lark until half the records committee had already counted it. Terrifying! Technical production is by John Lowry. Gather round, children, and listen to the tale of the stringer who reported a rare bird they didn't actually see. But when all the people came to chase it, they actually found it. So it was there the whole time, and the stringer missed it. Chilling. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who spit in the yarn of a birder who purchased a cursed tripod that grants three wishes to its owner. After two accursed wishes with unintended consequences, our birder wishes to find a first state record, goes out the next day and finds a Eurasian collared dove, and the tripod's leg slowly extends. Frightening! You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. I'm reminded, 
of a story about a young married couple on a long trip and it's raining at night while they're driving through Arkansas and they come across an agitated hitchhiker with bright red hair who they, against their better judgment, pick up. A few miles later, the car battery dies. The husband gets out and starts walking down the road to look for help. The woman is left with the hitchhiker who proceeds to tell a long story about how his kind used to be found all over here, but no more. As he does this, he starts picking at scabs on his arm. Oh, he says, by the way, my name is Bill. And then he wanders off into the swamp. Anyway, the husband comes back with help, and the woman reports a lively Bill wound picker to the authorities, and the rest is history. Startling! Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.